enjoying Ujamaa Place and celebrating its 10 years of service to its men and the community by listening to a Black Man Sketch, Episode 6, recorded live at Commemorate Black History and Culture Day, featuring authors Dr. Josie R. Johnson, Professor Mahmoud El-Khadi, and Melvin Carter, Jr. This is Brother Hassan, and we are live at the celebration for Black History Month at the George Latimer Library. I am with my brothers. Hey, this is Trevor. And this is Trey, a.k.a. Magic Journey. And we have a special guest, Miss Teresa. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are all of you? We are good. I'm good. Great. I'm, good. I'm enjoying Black History Month. I'm enjoying the celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little about yourself. Yes. Just a little bit about you. Um, so I am the recently appointed um, chairperson for the JAMA Board of Directors. Okay. Um, my name is Teresa Neal. I'm a lifelong resident of St. Paul in the Rondo community. Um, just retired from St. Paul Public Schools after 40 years, a high school principal. And uh, when I retired a year and a half ago, I said to myself that I needed to find a place where I could give my time, talent, and treasure to something that I was passionate about mm-hmm. and without... Um, any thought to it, it was Ujama Place. And so I am really happy to be a part of this wonderful organization and uh, working with and supporting the young men that really are the foundation um, to this organization along with a wonderful board. Okay, and we are happy to have you. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. We're definitely happy to have you. You got uh. me all in smiles. <laughs> um, so we want to uh, enlighten us on uh, the things that you do for Ujama. As a chair. So as part of the uh, board of directors, our, our role and goal is um, a governing organiza- governing board to ensure that the vitality of the organization remains and sustains and actually uplifts that and to support the wonderful staff and men who really, as I say, are the foundation of the organization, um, as well as Otis Sanders, who, you know, all of you, what I don't know if we even have the words to ascribe and describe Otis and what he has done um, for Ujamaa over the last 10 years. And so our role and goal is really to be supportive and collaborative and complement all of the work that's being done by a village of people to support our, our men and community. Thank you. For one, how, how are you enjoying the celebration? Uh, I'm actually loving it. You know, um, certainly one of the things that Ujamaa is known for is for uh, bringing forth the community in ways of where we can showcase um, our men and showcase the work that we do. And so today is just an example of first well-attended, um, particularly for Black History Month and recognizing the culture and uh, recognizing our ancestors through having Dr. Johnson and Dr. Mahmoud mm-hmm. Al-Khati and um, Melvin Carter and uh, the Castile Foundation uh, we as a community are, are strengthened by that, and, and my hope is is that um, all of the men um, feel like they are strengthened. But uh, again, you know, this is about recognizing who and what Ujama is all about, and Ujama is about our Ujama man. And so, um, how can you not be happy and elated um, about what's happening today? I am. I feel like that's important for us too, because like in a, in a situation that we are in. Uh, we're, I feel like we, we have a lot of potential to show the world and the growth that uh, Ujama give us. It gives us a ability to, to move forward at a faster pace because of the resources that they give us. And um, for you to be in that situation where you're giving us the resources and we're able to accomplish certain goals, 
um, and manifestos, like we're really appreciative for that because that's something that we we feel like is going to be like a, a big step for all men and in, in even our community as, as a whole. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because one of the things is it's really important is is that um, your journey is not a journey of being alone. Um, your journey is a, a journey of where we are in um, we are connected. Um, so I think that is really one of the strong words that from the board that it is a connected board that it is a board that's relational um, that we can relate to where you're at meet you where you're at help and support you on this journey because um, in the end uh, it's a win-win for all of us it's hopefully a win for you as men in terms of your progress and success but it's also a win for the community um, in terms of you know a healthy community and healthy men who support this community so um, it is not about, like I said, a board uh, who does this work alone. Um, it is really about how we can continue to support you and know that um, anything and everything that you do, that we have your back. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I think it's amazing that um, we actually get to see people face to face instead of just some vague anonymous person behind the scenes. We actually get to engage with you guys and I think that's, again, really important that we actually see that it's reflected in the community as well. So, again, just seeing those faces that represent us. Yeah. And so, and that's really important that you say that because one of the things that we cannot delegate, I mean, we can delegate as a board that, you know, Otis does this or Darnell does that or Monique does that. But one of the things that we cannot delegate is our visibility. And so it's really important that you see us so that you know that we see you. I think it's, it's also important, not only just seeing you, but um, being able to tell you that the work that you guys do and um, the way we participate in you, John, it really gives hope to people in the community. I can't tell you how many guys I come across and they are in similar situations that I've been in um, or, or different, and I tell them about you, Jama, and, you know, it's this look on their face where it's like, okay, I got somewhere where I can go where they're going to get me. It's like-minded people. I'm going to get some help. Um, it's not going to be like standing downtown um, in, in the line at the Kellogg building. I'm not knocking them, but everybody knows how it go when you go down there. So um, you guys are definitely doing a great thing, and, and you know, we all a part of something great. And I'm hoping that you stay, and if you leave, people like you come, because we got to keep this going and keep it growing. We 10 years strong now. It's Exactly. 10 more, you know. Exactly. And and I'm not going anywhere. Okay, I'm retired. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so you have me for a while. But here's the thing that I also want you to um, be mindful of is, is that we talk about 10 years. And somebody planted a seed mm-hmm. 10 years mm-hmm. ago. And look where we're at. Mm-hmm. And so for each of you, you are the seeds that are planting for the next 10 years. Most definitely. And so yeah. um, we know that as long as we meaning the community and the board and all of those who support you, as long as we water and nurture the seed, Mm -hmm. it will grow. Mm -hmm. And so we are looking forward to the next 10 years here at Ujama. Greater things, new heights. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's been going strong for a while, so, and then, you know, we get added a great addition. Thank you. You know, me doing this as well, you know, we're live to commemorate Black History and Culture. You know, y'all put this together really well. You know, got great speakers as to here as well. It's beautiful. It is. And so can I just um, share with you, because as we talk about the next 10 years and embarking on new horizons, um, one of the things that has occurred for 
um, us here at Ujamaa in terms of a board is for the first time in Ujamaa history, we have Ujamaa men sitting on our board of directors. And so um, how blessed are we for that? Um, mm -hmm. That these three young men that walked into Ujamaa however many years ago are now literally sitting on the board of directors making decisions about the growth and sustainability of Ujamaa. So it is, like I said, it's a new day for us. Mm -hmm. And um, for all of us that sit around the table to talk about how we can be creative and innovative in terms of ensuring that you as Ujamaa men get what you need, um, just know that you've got three additional voices um, that have been there, that have walked in your shoes, that know exactly what it's like. Because some of us have said, uh, we understand, but you know, you don't really understand if you have never walked in, in the shoes of a Ujamaa man. So um, the Ujamaa board is really happy and we want to, I just want to give a shout out to Ramon and Richard and Saviti for their willingness to just come on board and say, yeah, we're going to do this with you. I know when I first came in, um, Otis actually told me, he's like, we want to, once we retire, because they're not going to be here forever, like Kadar, like, like they're going to go at some point, and we're always going to be looking for Ujama men to replace them. And I thought exactly. that was really heartfelt. I'm like, that'd be wonderful. Exactly. Exactly. Passing down the torch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So yeah. thank you so much for having me a part of this. Um, just know that, like I said, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, we are connected. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if there is ever a weak link, believe me, uh, we are going to do everything that we can to ensure that it's strengthened. Because um, mm -hmm. I believe in Ujamaa, I believe in you as Ujamaa men, and I believe in our community, and we all deserve the very best. So thank you, guys. Yeah, we appreciate you coming thank on you. coming on board with us and uh, talking for us and thank you know, you. enlightening everybody. Appreciate each one of you. Have a good rest of the day and enjoy this event. Yeah, it's been wonderful. <laughs> shout out to Monique. Yeah, shout out Monique. <laughs> hey, OMG. OMG. <laughs> I don't know. We we caught a phone ringing in the headphones, so we ain't over here being silly, but <laughs> uh, we catch a lot of these headphones. I mean, where's that coming from? But um, uh, one thing I want to add to music therapy, music therapy is a great way to connect with our peers. A lot of times, you know, we might be, for me, on the train, on a bus, in a classroom, or just walking through the, the Griggs building, and I see somebody, you know, one of my peers, and I might feel like, he don't know me, he don't know this dude. Ain't. And then we get in that room and we hear this music and like, hey, we got this in common. This is a similar uh, piece of our backgrounds. And it's a great way to connect and, excuse me, that's what's missing right now in my opinion, being able to connect with people um, in the community and where I come from and where they come from. It's a lot of like, you know, stink faces that people like, you know, yeah, nobody like nobody nowadays, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's that's one of the things that I love about music therapy. And I also just love music. You know, I'm, I got an old soul, so all my music is, is old school. True. <laughs> I, <wanna, laughs> I would like to add though, uh, we're sitting in there in therapy and listening to all this music. I always try to remind the guys that Music is the language of emotion. Mm -hmm. So again, when Brother Hassan come in, he said, "Like, well, we might not have much in common, but once we get the music going, whether it's and old you know. or new, mm -hmm. then we have that connection. So like, oh, okay, you know that song. We know how it makes us feel. Mm -hmm. It's from maybe something our parents used to play mm -hmm. that stays with us. Mm -hmm. So I think it's awesome that we have therapy yeah. just for music because you get to see." 
a little bit more into everyone's around you that you may not talk to every day or maybe not at all, but just in passing. So it's like opening a window to their personality, what their world is like. Uh, I would say also what I get from music therapy, um, it back piggyback off of both of them. Um, we do get to learn like a connection between each person, even if we have like a different background. Um, I met a lot of dudes that, uh, you know, have completely different backgrounds than me. And we're able to listen to the same music, um, depending if it's substance or not. Um, we, can, we can break it down in a way where everybody is able to understand uh, a different message from the song that's perceived in front of us. So say we were listening to some trap music or and we'll, we'll break it down to a different aspect instead of uh, they're talking about selling, you know, drugs or whatever. We talk about the hustle and the drive that they have and what they're trying to get and what goal they're trying to get and why, why they're doing these certain things to get to, they're doing this for, to get to a certain point in life that they don't want so they don't have to do these bad things. They want to be able to trade the bad for the good at the end of the day. It tells a story. You know, I wonder um, about the role of elders in the passing of the music from individual to individual because you are basically the same age group. Sorry. You're basically the same age group. You may have different experiences, but our cultural connection is what connects all of us. And sometimes we're not even conscious of that connection. And it's important to find the time. Thank you. It's important to find the time to spend together. We mm-hmm. don't do much of that anymore. We're all much too busy. And we are often without time to get to know each other more than just a name. What does it mean and how do we connect? So I'm so impressed with Ujama because these young brothers have made the decision. Sometimes it's painful and sometimes it takes longer than anyone anticipated. Mm-hmm. But it gives us time to think together and to try and learn the skill of being honest and open. Because we also live in a society that constantly creates the image that someone else wants of us rather than the image that we have to discover for ourselves. So music is one of those instruments, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So what you did as adults was what you had seen in your own environment, Mm -hmm. family, community. Mm -hmm. You heard what people said and you had an opportunity to kind of evaluate what you were experiencing. Mm -hmm. I can remember, for example, in my neighborhood growing up, there were all kinds of African-American people, all of whom 
supported us, clapped us on the back, told us we could do anything in the world we wanted to, and they were there. I can remember the physicians in our neighborhood who used to say, I want you to go to school, be a good student, because I want you to take over my business. So I want you to become a doctor, I want you to become a lawyer or minister. So we had people who represented every facet of African American life. There were brothers and sisters who didn't do well, had not had the opportunity to do well, who were what we see today, and that's people who, whose homes were primarily on the street or had limited opportunity to develop any of the skills they had as a community and survivors. So we learned early as a community. One, you were expected to do well. Two, your community was there to support that effort that you were putting forward. Three, they were proud, really proud of you and rewarded you by patting you on the back, urging you to keep on keeping on, which was an expression my father used <laughs> regularly, keep on keeping on. I can hear him. As a matter of fact, yesterday was his birthday. He was born February 7, 1904. So he would be how old? What's the subtraction there? And my mother, May 7th. It's kind of an interesting thing. My father was February 7th. My mother was May 7th. I was October 7th. And my brother was November 21. Three <laughs> times seven. That's crazy. So we kind of thought it was one of those <laughs> mysterious things that happened. But I'm urging our community to return to that community that we say we're still here. 2020, mm -hmm. we're still here, loving our children, exposing them to an environment of love and protection and success because that's our future. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think we forget from whence we've come because the world is so confusing and complicated and tries to create an environment of confusion and lack of respect for who we are and our ancestors and move away from our children rather than embracing our children. And these are things that we just have to continue, and I think that's what your organization does. I agree. It reaches out. It embraces us. It keeps us moving forward. Yeah. 
and having us believe in each other. We've got to be, I believe, maybe a little more uh, expressive so that our children, been so happy to see the number of young children here today. And when I see them in public meetings, you want to hug them, you want to <laughs> bring them close, you want to make sure they feel secure and loved, know their history, know from whence they've come. Because I think many of our children at a period, and I think one of you asked the question, at what point did we seem to veer from what so many of us experienced, love, protection, confidence, encouragement? Mm -hmm. When did that happen? I can remember um, back in the early 80s, the whole effort of drugs in our community. And I believe that it was that effort to separate us from our spiritual being and creating a false sense that there was something out there that benefited us. And I feel that cycle changing. Mm -hmm. And I feel you all create for us, your elders, this hope that we knew existed there, but you live in a system that sort of deliberately, not mm -hmm. accidentally, deliberately tries to divide us and to keep us from knowing from whence we come. Rich culture of language and art and music. And at one time, those were skills that were encouraged and taught in our school system. They're not anymore. Music is not a part of the curriculum, and no. language is not a part of the curriculum. And just understanding the historical um, understanding of who we are and from whence we've come. So we've got to, with your help, get us back to that period in our history that meant so much, kept us alive, and to repeat again, and here we are, we're still here, and we're still being creative and imaginative and productive. Yep. But those images are not the ones that are commonly seen and heard because the, the media and other forces that work against us would rather continue believing and telling our children that they're less than. But I'm just so thrilled about this work that you're doing. Well, before we let you go, I do have one more question for you. Okay. Um, so you spoke about, you know, having your mom and dad in the household and, you know, your community always backing you. 
um, what is the importance of having a man and a woman in the household? Well, I think it's modeling what a man behaves like, what a woman behaves like. It also, off, and it, it, you know, I think we have to understand that we, we have to know our history. The fact that black children could learn what a woman looks like, behaves like, loves like, mm -hmm. and what a man looks like, behaves like, loves like. And that it's okay. That it's okay to love each other. That it's okay to be engaged in learning together our history and respecting each other. I love the, the relationship that the three of you, you may not even know the, the image that you have projected for me as your elder. So happy <laughs> to see that. Thank you. And it means Thank a you. lot to us to have you show us how to behave <laughs> and what to do and to support your ancestors, my friends. They, you've got to think about, think of coming across the Atlantic in a ship that has our people feet to feet, dying, children being born, the treatment of our ancestors, and yet we're still here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're still here. We're still loving each other, teaching each other, caressing our children, and passing on the love of our that's kept us here <laughs> all of this time. It's just amazing to me. I'm so impressed. Well, thank with you. With all of you and with all of you thank for you. being here. Take your Saturday morning to come and talk together, shoulders to shoulder, loving ourselves and our children. It's critical because we're at our very, I don't need to tell you, very delicate point in American history. We've been through many things, but I don't think we realized how deeply etched supremacy and racism are in this culture. It is so deep, and we have to protect our children and share with them who they are and help them be proud of who they are. So keep on keeping on, my friends, as my father would pass on to you this morning. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our really heirs to a very rich piece of, of African-American and American history, that it changed the society.
You know, it doesn't look good. You say nothing ever happened. That's not true. You know, things did happen. Josie Johnson and I were born into a segregated society where it was legal to discriminate against black people, legal to disrespect them, legal to call them out of their names, you legal to abuse them every second of the day. You know, I don't have to read a book to know that. She doesn't have to read a book to know that. It's important that you understand that. You know, uh, The preceding generations, what they went through and how they fought to open this society and to democratize this society. The reason why you have a little bit of freedom now, all of us in this country, <laughs> is because of African-American people. There were many marginalized people besides us. Native Americans, poor white people, they didn't know that it's, you know, I'm white, what else? But they were poor and ignorant and hateful because they were taught that way. White people are not born evil. They belong to an ideology which teaches us to them to despise not just black people, but almost anybody with color. <laughs> and it's a dangerous thing to the world. It almost destroyed the world, the idea of race. It, Hitler was a racist, but a different kind of racist. He racialized other white people. He said there's a superior race called Aryan which means that all white people weren't Aryans, because <laughs> that was a perfect race, you know, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed <coughs> person. That's, that's not real. Swedes, he wasn't blonde-headed, and he was kind of chubby, he wasn't tall. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you could, that shows you the magic of the spoken word. That's what he understood. You can create things with words that don't even exist, such as Race, that's not real, that's mythical. Mm -hmm. But because it's written in the law and because ignorant, evil politicians preach that and capture the minds of white people with that, which disciplines white race. Now, white people are not evil, no, and they've done many evil things. But I might want to make it this kind of sermon, but we can't go for the okie doke. Don't buy into race, it's not real. We are a people created by history. We are a culture. We are a language group. Yes, we created a language out of those leftovers from Africa, like okra, gumbo, yam, all those African words, mixed with Native American languages and the overriding English language. That's Ebonics. That grows out of history. That's ours. Yes. No, but it's not because we are black and better. We're different. <laughs> That didn't mean you better. <laughs> we have an experience that is different from other people in the United States. That ain't your color, that's your experience. We are black because we arbitrarily choose to be black. Peoplehood is not a color, it's an experience. We are a people. We are a culture. We are a language. We are a set of values and beliefs and emotions and customs just like you would, uh, I would define the Irish just as I find black people. Never talk about color. Irishness is not white. That's an experience. I spoke Gaelic. That's the Irish language. English imposed English over Gaelic language and made Irish slaves for 700 years before 
were they were enslaved to the British longer than black people were. You need to know that. <laughs> you see, Irish, any Irish person know that they were enslaved to the British. Where's the color thing? <laughs> see, that, that, that's ideology. It's not color, but it, it's easy to do that to blacks and Native Americans, people in the South Pacific, because the looks were more contrasting. You understand? Mm -hmm. Race is false. Race is a myth. Racism is a reality. <laughs> you can create a reality out of a myth. It don't even exist. It doesn't correspond when you say race to the way people look. That's nonsense and madness, and I hope you people, young men and women, and men and Ujima, oh, Ujima, Ujama. Yeah. Ujima. <laughs> Gotta put the U. Okay, so. <laughs> It's okay. That's because of our culture. You know, we bonicize the word. Yeah. You know, like we talk like black people talk. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but uh, do you it's mind us? No, 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 no. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to go again. You got to get out. Yeah. No, I'm just playing. Um, I really just want to ask a few questions. Okay, um, I'm sorry. No, but I want to do my preface. Let me see one more preface. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, if you give a man a history, you give him a personality. If you give him a personality, you extend to him humanity. If you recognize your humanity, that means you also recognize mine. And this means there's a limit to what you can do to me and keep a clear conscience, okay? That's from Carter G. Woodson, the inventor of Black History Month. You know, history is another word for humanity. History gives you your humanity. That's why it's suppressed by this system of white supremacy. That's why you don't know anything about Native Americans. You can't know anything about them because their history has been suppressed and your humanity is, is denied. So I want Ujima men to understand that the word history means something else other than what's written in a book and so forth. It's your dignity, it's your humanity. There's nothing more important than your history and your humanity. They are the same words, you know. If you can control a man's thinking, you don't have to worry about his actions. If you can determine what a man shall think, you don't have to determine what he shall know. If you can make a man feel that he's inferior, you don't have to compel him to seek inferior status. He will do so without being told. <laughs> If you can make a man feel that he's justly an outcast, you don't have to order him to the back door. Why, if there's no back door, the very nature of the man will demand that you carve one out. That's what we're gripped by, the doctrine of white supremacy. It's denying our humanity. That's very important. You know, I'm a, I don't mind saying this. I'm somewhat of a propagandist. You know, he said, oh, propagandist me. I'm not. Propaganda just doesn't mean lies. You know, lies sometimes are in propaganda, but propaganda is, is a tw it's how you turn the story. You know, I want to emphasize my part of the story. Mm -hmm. I think white supremacy is evil and is harmful to all human beings, including white people. They ain't hip yet to what Donald Trump is doing, to exploiting <laughs> the emotions. They're not hip. It's, um, it's going to sound arrogant. They're not as hip as black people the fundamental political realities of American life. They don't know as much as black people about America. White people are tied to a powerful myth. 
They don't know themselves in the way that we know them. You know, it's been said, James Baldwin and others, that a master can never fool a slave, but the slave can fool the master because the master wants to be fooled. You got that? <laughs> the master wants to be fooled. But you can't slave know what's going on. You got to, there's, a, there's an even surface and there's an even bottom. There's a bird's eye view and there's a frog's eye view. We got both. <laughs> so we are, now this is, sounds arrogant. You know, white people, there are white people that want to take a baseball bat and go upside my head. Do you hear me <laughs> say that y'all, y'all, you've been duped <laughs> by a powerful myth. You've been had, <laughs> you've been took. You had the okadoke worked on you. I'm talking about white people. <laughs> if you were all white, I would say this to you. Because <laughs> I know that I'm a human being, the thing that you deny that I am. I know that I'm a human being. I know that I have 11 basic needs. I know that I have four basic wishes like other human beings. <laughs> and that has nothing to do with color. Sorry, sir, I want to apologize to you for overriding your wishes. Go ahead and do what you want to do. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> so uh, I kind of wanted to speak on your book, uh, Hiptionary, that you oh, that you yeah, have. Thank you. Um, so you you spoke about the violence and everything. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, well, really want you to speak upon the the connotation and ideology of words and the importance of them. Yeah. Okay. Thank you about that. Thank you for. Mentioning that little book, uh, you know who wrote that? You, editorial you, you meaning not one person, but black people. That, those are words that took me 15 years to collect from the voices of black people. This is not, this is not the classic research where I went to another book to get them. <laughs> it's the way black people talk. Some of the words are old. I use one of them like copacetic that comes from my daddy's generation. You know, that's been around since Bojangles. Uh, and, and, and all, all the new words that we've had at work, they were never, they were never even words until we invented words like, you know, uptight. You know, remember Stevie Wonder, uptight with my old lady. You know, well, that was a good plus thing. White people misunderstood black English, and they made uptight like you're nervous and scared. and That isn't what it means. It's because when white people borrow things, they make them white. <laughs> That's a black word invented in out of black language. There was no such word as uptight. <laughs> rap used to mean rap. Take the rap for somebody going to jail or something like that. Mm -hmm. Rap is a new word created conceptually. Talk, sing, sing, talk. You know, it's poetry. Mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's what rap is. <laughs> You know, we don't say that. I know you say, well, they got cuss words and so forth. That's true, too. <laughs> That's a part of it. You know, uh, uh, the Greeks used to uh, have um, displays of cussing. It was a high fo art form, didn't cussing a certain way. I went to high school with a buddy who, who would make you think that it was poetry. The way you put the combination of cuss words together is blow your mind. I, I, I never knew anybody, and he was a nice guy. <laughs> but he could cuss, you know. <laughs> and he was my buddy. I don't care what anybody said. Uh, 
Uh, Ebonics, that comes from two words, ebony, hard, black, wood, and phonics means sound. Mm -hmm. Black people created that. That word, Ebonics, black speech, black language, you know, black thought, black feelings, you know. This ain't about race. It's about culture. It's got to do with it. These things don't have color. And as long as you are subject to the doctrine of white supremacy, you're going to always be confused. If you don't understand something about the doctrine of white supremacy, you will be confused about everything else in this society. You've got to understand that doctrine. That's what rules America. It wasn't born here. It was brought here by the British. And the, they created this aura of black being negative, bad, no good, criminal, and so forth. That comes out of the European mind, the English particularly. Mm -hmm. Black means bad. We have created a language. Uh, some people, I think, Ebonics, the professionals call it black vernacular English. The professionals mean the American uh, uh, linguistic society, which professional people, they're talking about language when you and I sleep. They don't say black English. It's what even black people call it. It's not slang. It's not lazy. It's not broken. It's a language, a modern language, which is rule governed like any other language. It evolved. and It has rules. It's, it's, I'm saying the American Linguistic Society, you know, these students of language, they don't call black English slang. They call it a language, a modern language, which evolved out of modern circumstances. It's rule governed, and there are certain rules to it. It has uh, it, it, it's, it, phonetical aspects to it and so forth. So even we don't know. You hear black people say, well, we speak slang. That's an unmitigated lie. <laughs> You don't even know that his language evolves just like everything else through time and space. And there are always new languages coming into being. The other thing about black languages is you need to appreciate is that everybody in this country speak black. Spoken English, in America, I didn't say written, speak black. The language of popular culture is black. The language of, 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 of sports or whatever, <laughs> because black culture is present in the NBA. Black culture, it's not like it was when I was a young man, like you'd have two black people on University of Minnesota, you know, because they had a limit. <laughs> you couldn't play more than two. I mean, it was just 1961, and Illinois uh, allowed the two uh, black players be the first to play in, 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 in the Big Ten, and I know one of them personally, who the first to play in the Big Ten in 1961. It's a long time for you, but that's recent in history. That's like a, a minute ago. And to manipulate the media and make you think it's a long time ago. The Harlem Globetrotters is owned by the man who was one of the first blacks to play for the University of Illinois. That's yesterday. That's what we want to teach you. That's what Joseph Johnson wants to teach you. We are the same thing. It's like you say, well, it's a continuation of this 
No, we are part of the same act. <laughs> just happened in different. She from Texas. I was born in Georgia, raised in Florida, and partly raised in New York. I see. I'm a drifter, <laughs> and I Everywhere. went to school in Ohio, and I end up spending most of my life in Minnesota. That lady you just heard, she and I met as young adults in Minnesota, and I've known her longer than I've known any of my friends, and she with me. That's one of my, one of my oldest and best friends. That goes back to high school. This is hard. My best friends, I had some buddies now in high school, were two girls. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. No sexual stuff, no, none of that. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, my, they were best friends. Y'all need to dig that. <laughs> you know, girls can be your best friends. You know, right? And there's a reason why they, they're a big hit with me. Okay, let me stop with this. I'm sorry. Sir. No, you're good. No, you're here's, good. Here's the, thank you, brother. You said that. She said, I'm okay. You know what I'm saying? Because why I talk this way? I have a lot of time left because you, I'm welled up with stuff to say. All of it isn't, isn't wise and so forth like that. But I know I've got a few lessons to teach. Just to, he listened to that woman. You know, we got a few lessons to teach. As hard as it is, and it's hard to listen to elders. You know, I wasn't always this age. I know what James Baldwin is talking about. He says it's, a, it, it's hard for uh, the young to take counsel from the elders. That's hard. But they never fail to imitate them. That's <laughs> they true. don't even know <laughs> what they're doing. They don't know that they did something their grandpa did and so forth. <laughs> did. They don't even know. Because our history is not clear to us. It's not, it's, not, it's, 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 it's not a pure narrative yet. That's what we're trying to do. That's what black history is about. That's what the Black Studies Department, which I helped to found at the University of Minnesota, which she was a part of too, bringing it to being. There was no black studies. We brought it there. And you need to know that. White people need to know that. Why is that important? Because when you had a black studies, it cleared the way for women's studies. It cleared the way for Native American studies. It cleared the way for, 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 for Hispanic studies. The, we are the trailblazers. That ain't arrogance. That's true. And you need to know that. The, the studies department, a black studies movement across this country, which began in San Francisco, with it was students and black, stu white students supported black studies at one time. And we're the models for the studies for women's studies, for Native American studies, for Hispanic studies. Is black people are not competitors. We're pace setters. You don't compete with nobody. You're just setting the pace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For everybody else. You don't get in conflict with other ethnic groups. You do what you got to do out of a slave background. They operate out of what their background is. You know, Native Americans operate out of being an indigenous population. We operate out of people who have been literally separated from their origins, from their language, from their culture, from their beautiful value system and so forth. And it's been broken by the Atlantic slave trade. And the people who oppress black people is the American government, says Malcolm X. <laughs> There's no white man individual. Don't say I don't like niggas. It's about 
policies, segregation. What's going on with Trump now? Let me just say this and I'll quit. <laughs> what Trump is appealing to is something very, very visceral in the makeup of people we call white or call themselves white. They were not always white. Before Christopher Columbus, there was nobody walking around this earth telling other people, I'm white and you Negro, and you Manatter, and you Octoroon, and you any. These are all new false definitions of people. There was no such thing as a white man. You know, the people in Europe, they were too busy, what? Killing one another during the Dark Ages, mm. during the Middle Ages. It was an internal uh, thing. You know, the Irish, the Scots, the British, and so forth. You see the British uh, thing? What do you call the British? United Kingdom? That's, that's fake. <laughs> There's the English-speaking people beat up the Scottish people, beat up the Welsh people, beat up the people in Ireland, and made them submit to the English-speakers. The French did the same thing to the English. They crossed the English Channel in 1066, and William de Conqueror <coughs> made all the Englishmen who were mattered speak French. That's why there's so many French words in your vocabulary, because the French conquered the British and made them speak their language, and that's why you go to the toilet instead of the toilet, and that's why you sit at a table and sit at the top blade. That's why you see uh, uh, chandeliers. That's why you go down the boulevard. All these are French words. You can't speak English without speaking French. Mm -hmm. That's because the French beat them up mm. and made them speak. Yeah, the word government is French. Parliament is French. You speak French all the time and don't know it. That's Irish. because of one white people conquering another before they became white. And you got to challenge white people who go around with this foolishness. We want to be free. We want a just world that respects human personality, as Dr. King taught. That's what we want. We don't want this madness about people getting given rights and privileges because of their color and so forth and their background. Lastly, Gotta say this, because this is what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass, a lesson of all times, not only for black people, but for human beings. He said, in the whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict must be exciting, agitating, and all absorbing. For if there's no struggle, there is no progress. Mm. Men who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. <laughs> they want the rain without thunder and lightning. They want the oceans without the awful roar of their mighty waters. The struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one, but it must be a struggle. <laughs> Power concedes nothing without a demand. Mm. It never did and it never will. Mm -hmm. You find out what people will submit to and you will have found out the exact amount of oppression and wrong which will be imposed upon them and these will continue until they're restricted by words, yes, or blows, or both. <laughs> <laughs> the limits of tyrants is prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. So then, black people will be held at the North, hunted and flogged at the South so long as they submit to these devilish outrages and make no resistance, either moral or physical. Men and women may not get all that they pay for in this world, but they sure as hell must pay for all that they get. Thank you for your tolerance. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Bless you, Mohammed. I'm, I'm, really I'm really sorry about that, brother. I'm not even no, no, no. It's but fine. I had to. I left that on a good note. Right. Yeah. yeah. I like Special guest, <laughs> Melvin Whitefield Carter Jr. Whitfield. Whitfield. I'm sorry. I butchered that. You guys are tired. <laughs> you guys are tired. You guys have been at it all, all day. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, Actually, we have your book here on the table, and I've actually been thumbing through it a little bit and reading some stuff. And I would like. Um, to ask you questions about the challenges of Rondo. The challenges of Rondo? Yeah. Well, before I speak of the challenge, I want to speak to the opportunities and the privilege and the blessing of being a child of Rondo. It was, it was a haven in and of its own, its own kind of a rainforest, um, a kind of a, with a holistic bubble that appeared above us all. And, and people cared for each other. People, uh, we left our door. We left our doors open all night just in case somebody wanted to get in, in case somebody needed to get in. There was no lethal violence. We had our squirrels and the issues, but nobody ever killed nobody. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the thing about it was that Rondo was a place where black people were allowed to buy land all the time. They knew that they were going to destroy it. And our ancestors, uh, before I got here, I was born on Rondo, 717 Rondo. I'm talking fast because you guys only give me five minutes. <laughs> but, Sorry, our but, other guest was talking for like 50 minutes. Because that's uptime when, when the professor speaks. And I was yeah. taking notes. I was ready to listen to it. But, but anyway, though, um, the downside of that was that it was condemned while my ancestors were trying to buy property to hand down wealth to the generations. Mm-hmm. 1936 map states Rondo as, quote, and go look it up, the Negro slums. But at the same time, you know, my son can show you like nine deeds where the Carters owned own land, where they owned it. They weren't paying on it, they owned it. You know, and um, the, the, the value was sabotaged, we just got bulldozed and kicked out of there. It was a haven that got sabotaged. And they called it progress. In the name of progress, they took our shit. Excuse me, can I say that? <laughs> well, you said it now, bro. And told us that was good. Right on. Right huh? on. <laughs> uh, and I, I repent for that. But but Rondo was a, was a safe haven, and uh, you could hear music and food. I can still smell the food. I can still hear the, the, the love that went up and down the street. That's Everybody deep. Okay, so what, what else you got? <laughs> I got something real quick. Uh, you might not even remember this, but I know you're familiar with Element Boxing Gym, right? Yeah, I'm familiar with them. So, you know, you actually called one of my fights. You introduced me. I yeah, ring announcer. Yeah, yeah ring announcer. You know, I, 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 hand, I teach how to handle a little business. And I've mentored a lot of people. And Dalton yeah. Offlaw yeah. uh, graciously uh, acknowledges me as one of his mentors. He's, mm-hmm. he's the person who owns and runs and operates and creates mm-hmm. government boxing. Doing great things for the community. But yeah, so I recognize you from that. You brought me out. You said he- I was eloquent. Yeah, you know, he said he, he go to big boys. Yeah, big boys. <laughs> they ready to get it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I entertained myself at the boxing matches. Okay, what's, yeah. what's your, what's your uh, fighting name? Uh, I, I don't have, it was amateur. It was amateur, it was one of my amateur fights. Uh, one of my last amateur fights. What you winning? Uh, right now? I'm probably like 185. What was you fighting at? Uh, that fight was probably at like 78, like light heavyweight. All right. Amateur. All right. But yeah, he, he got a question for if you. If I was younger, I'd take you out and see what you got. Oh, <laughs> hey, I, look, I already, I, I was there when you were. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, 
kicked he it shy. off. He shy. He nervous. Right? <laughs> no, I kicked it off. <laughs> you, got, you, got, you got him up here nervous. <laughs> no, um, I do want to ask about because uh, you were a chief, right? No, I was a mere sergeant detective. Okay, inspector. Sorry. One of the, my jobs was in, was internal affairs officer. Mm-hmm. I, when officers did bad stuff or were accused of it, I would call my office and. Straighten them out. And why did you, or did you do what they said you didn't? And um, that was that was quite a thing. I spent like 15 years on street patrol, mm-hmm. and I became a sergeant supervisor, a detective, and uh, uh, and then I closed out my my career as pretty much in the detective ranks. Mm. Oh, that's big. That's, that's big time. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is impressive, especially back then in those times. To have a role like that, as you say that, I instantly thought um, right now what it would mean to have um, a African-American or more African-Americans involved in internal affairs. When you look at the situations between uh, police and, uh, you know. The okay, let me answer you fast because I don't got much time. You know, I, I, I'm not for somebody being in office because of who, how God made them originally. Right, right, right. I mean, like, like for example, uh, Clarence Thomas, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a person who was born who looked like me, but he'd be an enemy of the people, in my view, right. if, mm-hmm. if he were put in office, you know. Okay. I, 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 want, I want to know your heart. Mm-hmm. I want to know your background, your history, and where you're coming from in mm-hmm. order to go where you're going. You right. um, to be in eternal affairs, you know, um, I'll say this, that, um, you know, I, was, I, I know what it's like. Mm-hmm. I had my share of internal complaint, internal mm-hmm. affairs complaint that were against me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I felt like some of them might even been had something to them. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but um, when I when I did stuff, I did it what I, in what I called in good faith. And so I might even gone outside of the the realm of what was um, prescribed to get a desired result. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so, um, if if an officer did the right thing, mm-hmm. and 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 and. Did, did kind of did a bad thing for some wrong reasons, you know. I, I want to see what he was. I mean, for the right reasons, mm-hmm. I, mean, I think we need to look at that. Mm-hmm. But if he started out to be vicious and malicious and and um, and criminal, then that's another thing. Right. But you know, you, you know, officer goes into a situation that's really really bad, and you got to resolve it. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't go kill. You can't research it. You got to decide right now how to save some life. Right mm-hmm. now, is this life or death? Right now, mm-hmm. is this. You know, one of the, the, the when I first became a cop, one of the African American uh, police officers said, "Son, when you become a cop, you stand, you're sitting on a three-legged stool. One's on the banana peel, one's on prison, one's in the graveyard. Mm. You know, so and so, you, <laughs> and so, where do you go from there? Right. You know? And so, uh, I, I want good policing in mm. my community. I want people who know the people, love the people, and know the terrain." My big push would be more for people that's indigenous to the place and to the community. But I lived in the, I was one of the few rare officers who lived in the community where I patrolled, mm-hmm. you know, and, the, and my, my, my children went to Central, you know, and my big fear was that somebody would take something out on my children that, that I had been right. responsible for. So I was very conscientious in, in the, the bar that I raised to, I mean, the bar to which I sought to treat people was really high mm-hmm. because my family did that. I'd show up on up on the avenue and the gangster said, I just saw your dad, man. <laughs> I saw your mom. I saw your sister. I saw your kids. You know? And I said, I'd ask, well, how they do it? You know? And uh, but, but my family grew up with everybody, you know? And so that's my big thing rather mm-hmm. than uh, arguing for some, but I do think the presence of Africa, I do believe that 
a, a police department needs to be reflective of the community that it serves. Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, agree. Not uh, what you got. Yeah. <laughs> well, you said that you police the community that you. It, what? <laughs> what? Uh, um. Damn, I lost my train of thought. Okay, let me say this. <laughs> uh, let, me, let, me, let me keep my train of thought because I don't talk too fast. You know, for example, I give you an example. I did something wrong, and I want to tell you what it is. But I didn't get an assault for it. I didn't get a, a complaint for it. As a matter of fact, uh, this is my favorite arrest. A, a, a friend of mine who's a single mother told me, Melvin, my, I'm going to call him Bruce C. You know, he, was, he was escaped and considered extremely dangerous, and I'm going to leave my lights on. She was afraid that the police were going to destroy him when they caught him. But she knows, you know, and so when I was a cop, you know, people would bring the children to my house if they were to be arrested, you know, and it's because they knew that they were going to get no cheap shots. But I'll tell you this, and this is honestly and it's true. He said, he's going to be in my house tonight, Christmas Eve, and I'm going to leave my, if my Christmas lights are on outside, that means he's inside. Come in the side door, I'm gonna leave it open, go across the kitchen, and go down the stairs, and he'll be down in the basement. So I was a supervisor at the time, I had to squat, so I had to do it right, so I had the place surrounded, and I came in. I opened the door, and I'm trying to be surreptitious, I'm trying to be sneaky, trying to be creepy, do me some stalking. I opened the door, and you think someone had oil that baby, wouldn't you? <laughs> the door opened and so I walked across the floor and, and nobody oiled that basement door so I, I walked on down and the basement opened up into a big area it wasn't really finished or anything so I came down there real fast he's down there uh, smoking something he wouldn't have a business smoking so I get down there and I say and so I already had rapport with him you know what I said to him? Step away from the gun, put down the joint, come here and give me a hug. And so we're down there doing this here stuff. You know? And eventually I, I kept blocking the exit and he, he put down and I got be, I wedged myself between him and the gun and um and 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 we wound up having he he, he wound up surrendering to me and he put his head on my shoulder and we and he cried. And mom came down and we had some prayer and I slipped on my bracelets. Very gently. And we, we had a little three way prayer and, and he went to um Rudolph, he went away mm -hmm. without an incident. That's beautiful. Now that was wrong. I, you know, that was outside the perimeters of. I mean, I didn't write that in the report. You know, I probably get fired. I probably, you know, because that could really go wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, but it had it had a good outcome. So you know, you got to figure out. What do you guys think? Was that wrong? No, no, no. Yeah, I think that's appropriate. Right. So you ready? One more. Yeah. Is it okay if uh, we let the audience ask you a couple of questions? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I was going to ask it. All right. All right. Does anyone, would anyone like to ask a question? Accusations, criticism. There's a story in the book, um, in Diesel Heart, there's a story that you tell about when Otis was at Oak Park? Yeah, Otis, come okay. tell it. Come, come, on, tell come it. on over here, Otis. <laughs> because, because, because I'm going to tell you guys something. In this book, I'm going to claim some stuff that's pretty crazy, extremely outrageous, and hard to believe. You know, and Otis is going to tell you about one of them. But, but it's not the most hard to believe thing. But when they did the book, they fact-checked everything I said. 
and 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 they they didn't have any my language at all. They just yelled without what they do. Here's oh, there's Snatter. Give me a round of applause. Take him out. Take him out. Back when I was on the SWAT team. Yes. Well, I told you he told a lot of catchy stories, you know. But, uh, but this was actually true. Um, I think the first time I met uh, Reverend Junior, he was he was a physical specimen at that time. He was on the St. Paul SWAT team, and this was in the early '80s. Uh, we had just opened up Oak Park Heights. Oak Park Heights was um, a new maximum security prison, supposed to be impregnable. Nobody can escape from Oak Park Heights, and. Um, to, to be considered a maximum prison, you had to have three barriers. Oak Park Heights had like eight of those barriers. <laughs> and so we was a, a one of the supermax of the time. And uh, so before we received uh, residence, um, uh, we wanted to do a lot of exercise to see how impregnable we were. So we invited the SWAT team out to do a lot of these exercises. And uh, we had one ac uh, activity. Uh, when you're on the floor of a facility, you had to climb scale this wall, which is five stories high. And in a blizzard. Huh? It was in a blizzard. Now, I was the only black person on that thing. You know what I'm saying? Freezing. <laughs> 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 I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, well, I just did. Well, anyway, he's the only guy. Anyway, uh, the, the key was if you get up the wall, you had to go over these five strands of wire, and they were hot wire. So that means that they were so sensitive that if a bird landed on them, on a long ago. So to get the wall, you had to go over these five strands of wire. And I don't know how he did it, but, I, <laughs> but uh, he was one of the first, only guy at the whole team of my employees, as well as the St. Paul SWAT team that can get up the wall and over the wire. So he built himself as the only person to ever escape from Oak Park Heights. <laughs> hey, come on now. Somebody, come on. And Oakley was proud of me, too, because we was, the, we was the kind of the only one that kind of looked like us. That's a, I could see his brother smiling across the face. <laughs> <laughs> and when I did it, uh, everybody on the SWAT team had tried. And nobody got close, you know. And there was never no doubt in my mind, you know, I can handle that business. But please, please. <laughs> <laughs> what was the trick to get over the wire? Extreme uh, physical. What's the word? Prowess? What's the word? <laughs> Physical prowess. Yeah, you know, yeah. Man, you know, because you, know, you can see that, that I, wasn't, I wasn't the biggest guy. And I, and, but, uh, so I had to keep my, my anatomy in such a way that I could handle whatever obstacle was in front of me, be it human or, 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 or a structure. Yeah, yeah he literally right. have to put himself over the wire without touching that. Leap over the wire. So it was, uh, it was so pretty. You, so you were up at an altitude that you had climbed. You got to the wire. You were able from that position to catapult yourself over. Something like that. You can't do it today. You can't do it today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get it I'm the only person that <laughs> Okay, Oakheart Heights Prison was, was the most secure prison in the world at the time. Take a one man lives. <laughs> well, I hate to rain, do I? I hate to rain, do I? So, uh, so then that did happen. And then what's, what's intriguing to know is that I was, at, I was there as I watched what we now call mass incarceration unfold. And, um, and I started an organization called Save Our Sons. And I know that my sense was that the black seed has been targeted throughout time from like since biblical days, you know, up till now, I don't, I don't know of a time when the black male hadn't been targeted, but I really saw it specifically. And so I began to operate against that. One of the things I would do was go to court with young people and, and, the, and the narcotics unit would actually 
filed an internal affairs complaint against me for, 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 for your honor, don't send that boy to prison, give him to me. So I had an organization called Save Our Sons, and some of the judges would give him to me, or, or assign him to my care, and instead of sending him to prison. And so I, I, it made me a more in-depth community member. We embrace the child. Thank you. Let's have a hand for Diesel. scripted out, but I thank you for trying to be obedient to time. But he's a very fictional community. Please look for him. Um, Melvin around town, in event. He's very gracious with his time. And uh, if you haven't read Diesel Hard, please do this. Mandatory. Don't <laughs> 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 be a quiz on it. <laughs> everyone gather back. But let me just take a moment to thank uh, all of our uh, local legends who uh, came here today to share their talents with us. And that's my sister and mother, Joseph Johnson, as well as my mother. And of course, Melvin here, and uh, also um, Valerie Castile, and most of all for you for taking time out to come and share this day with us. We are so pleased, so pleased that the great uh, people at the library let us take over your house today and to, to uh, introduce you gentlemen to so many of you. A lot of your friends that are here, family and friends that uh, that have uh, already know about you gentlemen, but it's been an honor for us to introduce others and to present to some. And uh, so again, uh, we closed up with our podcast team here. Uh, Trevor, Trey, Brandon, thank you guys. Good job, guys. Thank you. So again, uh, please look for future Ujama activities. This is celebrating our 10th year of operation. 10 years that we've been here uh, trying to um, change the lives of young men. But most of all, uh, we've taken advantage of the, um, the tension of our community to get embraced to try to interrupt, interrupt, Poverty, to disrupt poverty, to interrupt the flow into the criminal justice system, and also just to be advocate to show these young men and show people in our community how productive they are. That we may have made mistakes when our frontal lobe was developing. Uh, we took a left turn, we could have took a right turn, what have you. But we want to be a part of it. And I think um, your gentleman's ability to show off the talent and the courage of young men. So again, come visit us if you can. We do our best to try to tell that story uh, through Monique on, uh, on our web page and Facebook, but like anything, what you see is actually just 20% of our work. 80% uh, of work is what I heard Brandon was talking about, that community where we can trust each other and go back. I look at the face of Richard White, who was the first gentleman, and to see his transformation, but not transformation with his journey. So now I probably say he's on our Ujama board though. So he's my boss now, so that's why I'm feeling very nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. I need to raise. So thank you all so much. Ben, how you doing, sister? Yeah, that's how you doing? Oh, how you good day? I had a wonderful day. Yeah, good, good. Wonderful day. day. Good day. So many uh, wonderful people stopped by yes. and asked a lot of questions about uh, the artwork. All the artwork was. Um, made by the community. I am not an artist and I have a lot of artwork and hopefully uh, with the redesigning of the Peace Garden we can incorporate some of that great artwork that uh, the community developed can be implemented in that design. So that's what we're working forward to, um, redesigning the Peace Garden and implementing uh, the works done by the community. How awesome would that be? You started this Peace Garden and then your work would be on at the Peace Corps, and I mean, that is phenomenal, and uh, 
people really learned a lot today and it was just so welcoming because you don't understand. I get my strength from you all. You know, y'all my backbone. You know, I thank my Heavenly Father and the Spirit of Philando for without my community letting me know that I'm doing the right things and you out there supporting me and fighting with me. That means the world to me and that's what keeps me strong. And I just want to say I appreciate you guys with all my heart. All my heart, I appreciate y'all. I wouldn't be no good. I couldn't do this by myself. If I didn't know that you guys cared the way you do, I would have been gave up. I mean, that would have been the simplest, easiest thing that I could have done. Except the fact that my son was murdered by the police and just go somewhere and just be in misery. Because we all are in need of healing. You know, we all are traumatized. It's one catastrophe after the next. It's over and over. People are losing their lives. And we can't even recover from the last one. You know, it gets to the point I had given, I was in, um, Virginia, and I, you know, when I run into people, I, you know, give them one of the stickers and stuff like that, and the young lady took it and, and said, and who is this one? You know what I'm saying? It is to the point where it's, it's so regular, you can't keep up with the name. You know, I, I was like, oh my God, you know, this is real. This is crazy. One is one too many. But you're talking about thousands of people's lives now. So I just want to thank you all for being my, my support system, my backbone, my lift me up, carry me, all of that. Because I need you. I need you. Thank you. Again, we hope stay and welcome here. But, uh, <laughs> we have such a great day. It's time to end. So thank you so much. But again, to all of you, thank you so much for coming out. God bless you. Keep us in your prayers. Thank you. Thank you for getting me out.